Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Adam Ducker, Senior Managing Director at RCLCO. If you're listening to our podcast today, you probably know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies and organizations seeking strategic, tactical advice regarding investment planning and development. Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I am truly delighted to be chatting with James Nozar. James is the CEO of Strategic Property Partners, a commercial real estate investor, developer, and operator based in Tampa, Florida. James is indeed one of the best minds in real estate and someone I've had the great pleasure of chatting with like this, working as a colleague. He's someone I consider a friend and a real leader in our industry. We're going to spend a little bit of time today, James, discussing how you got here, what you learned along the way, your very interesting career trajectory, and some of the exciting things you're working on in Tampa. We'll also cover where you see the industry going, talk a little bit about your life, the universe, and everything. So a big agenda. Sounds good. Should we jump into it? Absolutely. It sounds great. And thank you so much for having me. So let's dig in. You grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's right. Did you come from a real estate family or was it an interest you developed at an early age on your own? Yeah, no real estate or design or really anything in our family. So I don't know exactly where it came from. But yeah, at an early age, I was telling everyone I wanted to be an architect and was constantly found drawing and you know building what became a pretty huge Lego village crawling across my parents' home kind of came out of that. You know, I don't really know how or why. You did not become an actual architect in school. Is that right? That's correct. I did always plan to do that. Actually applied for College of Architecture when I was graduating out from high school. And I entered an architecture firm that senior year in high school. And they all said, you know what? Go into the business side. Architecture sucks. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love architecture. I love design, and I'm very fortunate to work with some amazing, talented designers. But it, it's definitely a hard field, and it, it is fun being on the business side because we're able to shape, you know, work with some great minds in architecture and design and planning to do some great things. So I, I really do love the business side of real estate. It's just such an art where you're juggling so many different factors from the market to, you know, obviously design and planning demographics and kind of where things are heading and and really able to take advantage of those opportunities. So it was ultimately great advice. So I I did end up pursuing a degree in building construction at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, which was in the College of Architecture. So I was able to take a lot of electives in architecture, which I've always really enjoyed. That's where I ended up heading. Sticking with architecture just for a second, My sense from our conversations in the past is that you place a very high premium on architecture, even as a potential driver. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
working, I've always put a high premium on just quality, a quality approach to everything that I've worked on. And I think in our the companies I've worked for have thought that you ultimately get paid for that. And with that quality comes quality partners, quality collaborators, and you know the designers are a very important part of that. So we've always really tried to kind of challenge the norm and look for some of the leading minds on the design side. And it's been a lot of fun to work with them and in a lot of cases kind of grow some of these architects from you know, relative obscurity into building some pretty wonderful practices on their own. And that's been fun to be part of that. Let's go back Georgia Tech. It's the 1990s. Atlanta was just beginning the transformation into the urban and dynamic built environment that it is today. Did being there at that time set the trajectory for your life in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. Similarly to wanting to be an architect, for some reason, I always wanted to go to Georgia Tech. So I grew up in North Carolina, and I can't even tell you where and how that came from. But when I, I toured a number of schools around the country, Georgia Tech really spoke to me. And as you said, Atlanta was going through a transformation, having just hosted the Olympics in 1996. I started school in 1997. So there was a lot of amazing things happening in downtown and midtown Atlanta around Georgia Tech's campus. I really loved the idea of being in a city. While Charlotte was wonderful, it was still pretty, it still is a young city. Atlanta was a big city for me. You know, it definitely shaped a lot of interesting, Atlanta is obviously a very interesting city. It has some, uh, a lot of different pockets and a lot of things to learn from. You know, it's clearly evolved a lot since then. As has Georgia Tech, right? It's really become a powerhouse in real estate. Yeah, and expanded across the campus. You know, they've really become much more integral with, with Midtown and Downtown Tampa than they, than they were when I was there. So first career, you gravitated towards consulting. What at the time did you think consulting offered and looking back on it, and how do you process that decision and that experience? I don't think consulting would have been my first preference coming out of school. It was the job that was available to me, and I was really interested in in learning. And I always wanted to get into real estate development, and it is and it was a very hard place to land yourself in right out of school. You know, it's kind of a catch-22. It's like you need to have experience to get into the field and you can't get the experience without, you know. So consulting was that avenue for me. I worked a couple intern stints during college, including with the capital planning department at Georgia Tech, where I was actually working on a lot of those planning for a lot of the projects that are now Georgia Tech's campus across the highway there in Midtown. And through some connections, ended up landing at Ernst Young's real estate advisory services practice based in Atlanta. Well, they had an office in Atlanta. And that took me all over the country. And I was with them for a few years. And about a year of that was in Chicago. About a year of that was on assignment and a job in, well, New Jersey or around New York City. And I loved you know, being exposed to a lot of different clients and different perspectives and helping them all realize value. And that was a fantastic experience for me, but I, I really wanted to get, again, more into the development side, working with real estate developers. I was working mostly with companies, helping shape their capital improvement plans. And so RCL Co., and that's where we got to meet each other, became a good place for me to transition. And I was in Atlanta with RCL Co. for two years and worked with master plan community developers, urban condominium and apartment developers, cities and municipalities that was involved in the planning of what is now Charlotte's light rail corridors, which is awesome to go back home and, and see that, you know, in practice now. 
So it got really broad exposure. You know, for me, that was my the foray to finally kind of make the leap into development. I, I really gained a lot of experience in being at RCLCO. So tell us honestly, what was the best part of your time at RCLCO and what was the worst part? We have a thick skin, but let's start with the best. What did you take away from it? What did you enjoy about being here? The exposure to all sorts of people in the industry. And, and RCLCO is a pretty wonderful firm. I think we had about 100 employees at the time. Great people to learn from. This is the good and the bad. I was working on probably you know five to 10 jobs at any given time concurrently. And so just broad exposure to the overall real estate world. And we were doing consulting for some big firms as they were trying to kind of figure out where they wanted to evolve and grow, but then also working on just market analyses and market studies for a variety of folks. That was wonderful. You know, coming with consulting and Kaylee hasn't changed long hours, of course. So I, you know, and, and driving towards, you know, utilization and billable hours, you know, moving into the development world the last time I filled out a timesheet. It's definitely one of the parts. <laughs> that has not changed much. <laughs> yeah. When I meet people who have worked at consulting at some point in their life, I do find that there's a you know, a discipline, a, just an intensity and a focus that people that have had that experience kind of carry through their careers. Do you look back on that experience that way? Absolutely. You know, coming straight out of school at Ernst & Young and at RCLCO, I was, you know, you were expected to drum up business and be a good representative of the firm. So there was, you know, quite a bit of professional growth and professional communication and working with our clients and pursuing new work. And that was just invaluable, you know, on the ground experience that I had there. And now being able to translate that to an ownership group and investors and city officials, community stakeholders, it just, it's a way of, of listening and, and working with and learning from and communicating with other stakeholders and outside partners that is pretty unique to working in the consulting field. And I think that really prepared me for where I am today. So you land a job at Washington-based JBG. Today, it is certainly one of the nation's premier mixed-use developer-owner-operators, but even at the time, it had a very, very strong reputation. You move to Washington and you show up on day one. Do you remember walking into JBG that first day? What was it like? Did you have a sense of what you might get out of it at the time? Yeah, I was so excited to be given that opportunity to finally transition into that real estate development on the ground with a firm that I had always wanted. JBG is and, and was a fantastic company. So at the time, it was a private company. That was 2006. They had been around for 50 plus years at that time. Partnership led. It was started out as a law firm, actually. So their approach and their structure was very different than most real estate firms. But one of the largest firms in, in DC, they had 80 or so projects in the pipeline. And my first project was an office building that was under construction downtown DC, you know, worked on everything from wrapping up the construction to closing out the general contractor to leasing up the office space. You know, that was very different for me, you know, learned quite a bit, had a great resource pool there at JBG, but, you know, they were a big shop. There are 150 people in the main office and just incredibly sharp folks to learn from. And uh, that opened up a lot of doors. So I, I ended up, you know, they were a very entrepreneurial company and really allowed all of their employees to make a case for new investments and opportunities and, and be really actively part of the decision making. And that led me to advocating for growth into other neighborhoods and other approaches to development in D.C. that hadn't really been done before. So my 10 years there was quite a wonderful learning experience. 
JBG has this reputation, I think they've earned it, of really launching careers. Today, as a CEO, looking back at your experience, how do you process that? What does JBG know or what do they do right? How has it become this incubator of talent that now feeds the entire industry? Yeah, I mean, I think just being founded by you know, our, the original founding partners, the J, the B, and the G, Jacobs, Brown, and Gildenhorn, their culture that they built there was around collaboration, learning from each other, and allowing people to kind of grow and excel. And having that is, is your foundation, your background, which isn't always the case in commercial real estate world, has really grown a lot of wonderful people and a lot of my former peers at JBG and moved on to great things. And many of them are still there. Taking from that is exactly how I'm trying to grow and build SPP down in Tampa. So many wonderful lessons learned and and really being able to shape and grow people in their careers and train them, educate them, give them the resources they need to be successful and to kind of challenge the norm. Ultimately, always be looking to create you know, more value. And that for me is a lot of fun. So you went from no development experience to being a real rising star in the industry. What do you think it was about your personality or the decisions that you make or what did you do at that point in your career that really led to this exponential growth and evolution? Look, there's there's a lot of broad perspectives in the commercial real estate development field and world. And I have some wonderful partners, collaborators in Tampa, and we all have we all come from somewhere very different, different perspective, which I really like. You know, I like to challenge each other and, and learn from each other's different perspectives. My perspective, you know, I came from that foundation of just really respecting design and quality. I had that learning from Ernst & Young and R.C. Elko around understanding the market and what the market is and what it can be based on understanding data and trends and psychographics and all the different things that go into that. So, you know, balancing the physical sense with the market and then the financial side. So I, again, I've kind of always been a numbers oriented person, but being able to kind of balance the creative side with the number side, with the people side makes for a successful developer, I think. You know, I've been fortunate to have been exposed to, you know, those three, you know, different components over my career. And I think that that makes my perspective a little different than some others in the field. And when you look at that 10-year run, or maybe till today, from first day project manager to now you're kind of making decisions on huge investments, what was the hardest challenge or transformation that you had to make? Personally, the thing that you knew you had to do, but you struggled to do it. I think the biggest transformation for me is, I mean, obviously going from a place like JBG that had 150 employees and a tremendous resource network. And... 50 plus years of experience and connections and network in a market that they knew. And then just picking up and moving to a new market and having to build a team from scratch was incredibly exciting for me, but it's been a lot of fun. Let's talk about that. One day you're sitting there and the phone rang and somebody wants you to come to Tampa and start a real estate business. How did it really happen? Yeah, that is honestly, that's <laughs> I was out walking the dogs in Logan Circle in D.C. and on, a, I think, a Sunday afternoon, and I got a phone call from Jeff Speck, who is a planner and has written a number of books. I knew because he lived in D.C. and actually lived next door to one of the projects that I worked on there called Atlantic Plumbing. 
So we had never worked together, but knew of each other and respected each other. And he was working on this job down in Tampa and said, hey, they're looking for someone to lead this development project. Would you be interested? And I said, Jeff, I really appreciate you thinking of me, but you know, I'm really happy in DC with JBG. And you know, I've been to Tampa. I know Tampa really well. I like Tampa, but I just, I'm not interested in moving. And he said, well, let me tell you a little bit more about it. And once I learned about the scale of the project, the long-term nature of it, and the owners of the company and the capital behind it, it was very real. And it was a real opportunity. And I thought, well, this might be the opportunity for me to really kind of take everything I've learned at JBG and take it to the next level. You know, and I was kind of trying to look for, you know, what I wanted to do in the future. And it became a wonderful opportunity for me. And the idea of not just flexing your developer muscles, but building a company from the ground up, was it attractive? Scary? How did you process it at the time? It was all the above. I knew I could do it. I knew I had a good network of folks that I knew. And candidly, JBG was going through a transition at that time, you know, becoming what is now JBG Smith and a publicly traded company. So there were people in the market, you know, many of the major companies were all going through transitions at that time. So I knew that there was potential talent out there to attract down to Tampa to build something new together. So I knew I could do it. I knew the capital and the commitment from our owners was there to help me do it. And I really, you know, grew to love the Tampa market too, and just the opportunity down there. You know, it's been challenging. So, you know, where I was at JBG, I was given a lot of latitude and had this great resource network. I'm now spending probably 80% or more of my time just working with people. I can't be, you know, and it's not my job to be as involved in the day-to-day details of projects. So it's been a professional shift for me and, you know, one that I'm, I'm really enjoying. But I also, you know, bring some more people on our team that can help as we grow. Just to take a step back, tell the listeners about the project maybe a little about the history of Tampa, just to set the scene. Yeah, so Water Street Tampa is the name of the project. It's really a a neighborhood along Water Street, which is a historic street that ran along the waterfront in southern downtown Tampa. And we're bringing that street back. The area where Water Street Tampa is over the last 50 years has been either parking lots for the arena and the convention center downtown or light industrial use serving the port of Tampa. And prior to that was a neighborhood prior to the, you know, kind of in the 30s and 40s that was essentially converted into industrial use. And prior to that was an army fort, uh, Fort Brook. So it has a lot of history, but it was pretty much a clean slate when we started. And how it started was Jeff Bennick, who's one of our owners of our firm, moved from Boston down to Tampa and purchased the Tampa Lightning NHL franchise. And with that came two pieces of land around either side of the arena in downtown Tampa. And Jeff, being a very savvy business person, very quickly realized there was potential to do something with this land in downtown Tampa that Tampa had great fundamentals behind it. There's 3.1 million people in the metro area. It's growing at one of the fastest paces of any city in the country. It's twice as dense people per square mile as, as many of our peer cities like Austin and Nashville and Charlotte, and actually almost twice the size. But there hadn't been a huge focus on kind of building out its urban core and attracting new business to Tampa. It's a real working city. So so Jeff actually read a lot of planning books, including Jeff Speck's book, Walkable City, and started thinking about what could be, and eventually lined up with Cascade Investment, which is our other owner, and decided 
decided to start this firm to take advantage of this opportunity. And they really wanted to build a firm that was not only for this project, but was for many more projects that should down the road. And, and that's what came to be. So that's when I got the call in the summer of 2015, which was when they decided to really launch it. And during that time, they had acquired another dozen or so land parcels, all contiguous in downtown Tampa. And now we've got 56 acres of, of land, 9 million square feet of development planned, which is doubling the size of downtown Tampa, six jobs under construction today. Another six are going to start in the next nine months, including two more next month. About $1.9 billion committed in that first phase. So it's a huge project, you know, completely mixed use and really happening. So we believe there's a strong market for it. A lot of team owners, maybe even most team owners, look to act against real estate opportunity in partnership or by hiring the ability of an existing developer. Jeff decided to build that company. He found you to do it. And there seems to be pretty good evidence that it's paying off. How did he come to that decision? How has it worked out? Any regrets, any lessons learned that you'd share with other people? Yeah, it wasn't a decision they made quickly. You know, they had interviewed with a number of different firms who were very wonderful, respectful firms around the country who are experienced, established real estate development companies. But for Jeff and Cascade, they were really looking for a long-term development. You know, there's no plan to sell anything that we're doing at Watership Tampa. Our plan is to own and operate everything that we build and renovate. And also, you know, they wanted maximum control as to how things were done. You know, a lot of decisions we make are based on some qualitative reason or a long-term quality or operational reason. You know, partnering with someone, you don't always have that, you know, ability to be able to drive a lot of the decision-making. So the idea of starting a firm from scratch was really about long-term control and doing it right and building a team from within. They saw that opportunity in the market and that's why we came to be. And building that team is what you've spent a lot of your time on. How many people do you have working with you today? We have 63 employees at SPP internally, and of course, hundreds of outside consultants working with us right now. When I started, we had, other than myself, six full-time employees, several of which are still with us. So we've been working very hard to kind of build this platform. And what is your organizational philosophy like? What has driven the way you've built the team and the talent you've assembled and how you manage people? You know, do you have a kind of a mantra around that? Yeah, I mean, our culture and kind of our what's driving us as a company, is, as I was saying kind of earlier, is we have a couple of competitive advantages, I guess, and which is just our capital, the ability to work and scale, the ability to really understand and know all land uses and the ability to own and operate. So for us, we're really trying to those great long-term values. So we're really trying to challenge the norm, think outside the box, you know, be as innovative as possible in, in everything that we do, thinking for the long-term kind of enduring value. And that's definitely kind of the foundation of our company and who we're looking to hire are people who are passionate, um, of course, and who, you know, really we challenge each other. So we have a very collaborative setup of our decision-making and our executive team. We meet many times a week as a senior team to help each other and to make efficient decisions, but decisions that we all agree on, you know, after good, healthy debate. And then we're looking for, you know, a lot of our team is fairly young. So we're looking to, much like I said, like learning from JVGs, helping teach and grow a lot of the careers of some of the folks on our team and, and then retain them because that's the future of our company and future projects. There might be teams or people who go take those on, right? So that's their path 
in the future. That's how we're setting ourselves up. And, you know, we have everything from finance and investments, accounting, legal, HR, you know, all the operating platform, development, construction, marketing, communications, all in-house now. We've built, you know, all the pillars that makes a, you know, full-service commercial real estate shop. You've recruited, I know, very broadly geographically and really have handpicked people in thinking about talent. What are the things that you focus in on and how do you make a decision that this is the one who can really help grow this vertical or expand this business? Yeah, as we've been obviously growing and moving very quickly, and there's a lot of firms and people that I've gotten to know over the years and, and respect. And so there has been somewhat of a targeted approach to some of the folks that may be looking for a career change or might be the number two or number three somewhere that was looking to kind of grow their career and take more of a leadership role. That's been a big part of our recruitment effort. Tampa hasn't seen anything of this scale or magnitude, and some of the types of buildings and building typologies that we're working on haven't been done in a long time, and there hasn't been a high-rise office building built in downtown Tampa in over 25 years. So there wasn't necessarily the talent locally that we needed for a lot of these roles. So about, I think it's 24 of the 63 employees that we have are from out of market. I clearly knew a lot of folks up in the D.C. area had a lot of success in the Boston area as well. So you're, we're looking for people who are beginning or middle of their career, looking for more opportunity and a better quality of life. And we've had a lot of luck with folks that you know have 10, 15, 20 years experience, a family, and are looking for more opportunity and growth. And that's been kind of the sweet spot for us in terms of attracting talent down to Tampa. And what about culture? What are your goals and thoughts about the culture that you're creating that's sort of part of this company from scratch. Yeah, I mean, we want this and it is a, a very fun place to work. We all hang out with each other pretty regularly. Around that collaboration, it's very team oriented. And I think that's really important. And with 12 jobs that are active right now and each project having its own dedicated team, really even more so important that they're learning from each other and engaging with each other because we're all going through this together at the same time. All these products are going through the belly of the snake at the same time which is unique. And so that's really, truly one of the most important foundations of our culture is just that sharing of knowledge and learning from each other and knowing that we're going to make mistakes and that's okay, but let's learn from them and, and not do it again. You know, we've got a pretty passionate crew of people. It's a hardworking atmosphere. People are working, you know, around the clock and don't disconnect and how we're, you know, building out our benefits and our policies. We have no vacation policy. It's take as much as you want when you need it. Just work with your manager. And that's actually what we're kind of finding is people don't take it. <laughs> we're trying to force them to get out of the office to take some, you know, get some R&R because they're such hard workers and they're so passionate about what we're doing. And it's a fast paced environment that we're in. But, you know, we're attracting people who like that, you know, like being part of something transformative. Terrific. Well, let's come back to Tampa, which I want to hear you talk about a little bit. But spend a little bit of time on the topic of sports anchored entertainment districts. Now, when that phone rang that day in Logan Circle, you're not a passionate ice hockey fan. Am I right? <laughs> I knew nothing about hockey. <laughs> I did a lot of cramming and a lot of research, but it actually never came up in my interview process. But you began to envision Water Street as a district that is, and I don't want to, you tell me, is it a district that's anchored by an arena or is the arena, the DNA, is it part of it? You know, what is, what is this thing we're talking about, sports anchored? entertainment districts. Yeah, and there's 
sports anchored entertainment district is a really broad term, I think. We've talked about this quite a bit before. And, you know, the Amelie Arena, as it's called, is the home of the Tampa Bay Lightning, the NHL franchise. And that arena also it happens to be the third busiest concert venue in the country behind Madison Square Gardens and Barclays Center in New York. And it hosts over 2 million people a year in downtown Tampa for concerts and 40 plus games a year. And the Lightning happened to be, you know, with Jeff's leadership and guidance, you know, one of the best teams in the league. And they've sold out the last, oh, I, I forget the stat, but I think over almost 200 games in a row have a waiting list for season tickets. So it's really become a community anchor. I would argue that half the people or more that come to every single game don't know anything about hockey. They're there for the community and the experience. And they've really built a wonderful fan experience and a community-driven environment there at the arena, which has led to a lot of their success. So that happens to be in the middle of our district. At the same time, we're very careful to say that we are not an arena district. It is one of the many amenities that we have in the neighborhood. There's a, a lot of different ways of going about an arena district. And, you know, of course, you have urban development around football stadiums, baseball stadiums, basketball, hockey, soccer. And now we've got esports and you've got music venues and events. There's a lot of big, these big anchors. And for us, we're really trying to balance that with creating a place that people want to live in, that offices and employers want to work in. So it needs to be part of the experience, but not kind of beating you over the head with it, you know, every yeah. day, 24 hours a day. And of course, these arenas are, you know, are generally quiet, you know, 200 to 300 nights a year. So how do you make a place that is vibrant every day and, and even more vibrant when there's a major game or event without impacting negatively the quality of life of people that are visiting and living there? So that's the opportunity and the challenge with these sports entertainment anchored districts and neighborhoods. So for us, Amelie Arena, we're really trying to soften it in terms of how it fits within the district. But also, it's our reason for being, and it is a major, major anchor right in the middle of downtown Tampa. That's what we observe around the country, that it's very rare that, you know, large and sophisticated mixed-use developments are successful just because they happen to be next door to the stadium or the arena or whatever the venue is. But in cases where they're really planned and executed in a sensitive and thoughtful way, you know, one plus one can really equal three. Does the ownership have a sense of hopefully the arena is good for Water Street, but is Water Street good for the arena and the team? Absolutely. As I mentioned, the Lightning has focused tremendously on building the fan experience. I think Jeff had invested almost $100 million inside the arena just on technology and fan experience when he bought the team. And what we're really trying to do, which a lot of these arena districts are trying to do, is extend that experience outside of the arena. Right now, there's literally nowhere to eat or grab a drink before or after a game or event. What was, you know, all the parking for the arena is now development sites for us. Right. So we're replacing a lot of that. So we're changing the way people get to the arena and trying to make it a more pleasant experience for them at the same time. So it's definitely beneficial to the Lightning and the team, as well as to our real estate. It's bringing, you know, 2 million people there every year. And for us, that's a tremendous opportunity for the restaurants. It helps the parking, the cost of parking, and what's the future of parking. Well, we're still having a need. It helps arena sports parking work really, it happens to work really well with office parking. And the times of day work really well together when, when you have that demand and need. There are a lot of cost energies as well as revenue synergies between them. One of the reasons I'm so interested in this is that we're spending a lot of time on this. You know, the ownership of teams and this, sometimes the civic ownership of 
facilities have kind of awoken to there's this huge opportunity literally in their backyard and people are struggling with how to execute against it, which is that how do I, you know, build or buy the expertise that we talked about earlier? What is the program? How do I do it? And then, you know, as public financing for these facilities dries up, what is the role of real estate in helping fund, you know, venue or improvement or the team and the like? So, yeah, there's a lot of creative ways to approach that. And there's no one right way. And of course, every city and jurisdiction is very different. The political climate is changing very rapidly. You know, Amazon, HQ2 and Queens, New York. I mean, these things are all interrelated. It's a public sentiment. You know, and generally you're seeing public financing for sports stadiums and, and venues like this on the decline, you know, around 50% of the overall cost and the cost of these stadiums and arenas going up significantly, you know, billions of dollars in some cases. So, you know, real estate around it can certainly be part of that puzzle and also making these these venues more active, more days of the year and more engaging with the street and the public life versus just being kind of dark for all those days of the year when there's not an event. While our strategy has not been, the arena was there, you know, Jeff has put quite a bit of an individual personal investment into the arena. The county, in our case, Hillsborough County in Tampa has been a great partner of ours, where their support of our project has been actually more on the infrastructure. So we're building an entirely new network of streets downtown that haven't been there in over 80 years. So they contributed $100 million towards the infrastructure and public network, public street network and parks around the development. That was really beneficial for us to get the, the real estate going and make the numbers work, which benefited you know our owners. That was a different way of approaching it for us. Yeah. And just one more question about, you know, Water Street. You know, you stepped into this opportunity in 2016 and the vision that you collectively put together was very bold in terms of the density and the sophistication. And you, know, you talked about some of the kind of unique business conditions that you had, but you know, as the CEO of a new company and pulling this off, how did you get comfortable doing that? How did you know that was the right approach? Yeah, you know, that experience I had at RCLCO certainly helped on assessing the market opportunity. When I started, we didn't even really know how much land we owned. All of our accounting and all of our books were in QuickBooks. So this was really, we were really starting from scratch. And we really did a deep dive on what we think the market opportunity is. And unfortunately, kind of Tampa has been relatively quiet on the national stage, but it's a big and growing market, but it was not necessarily on the radar of major companies that may be looking to expand or grow and maybe outside of the market they're already in. And that didn't make sense to us. You know, you've got a great airport, a big market, great climate, good business climate, and it's a real working city. It's actually... The average age of Tampa is, is three years lower than the national average, so it's a young city and it has a lot going for it. So we really saw that the primary opportunity here was with the scale and our approach, we could attract and shape some of the growth that was already happening in Tampa towards the urban core. There's not a lot of urban lifestyle-oriented options in the Tampa Bay area, but those that do exist tend to do very well. So downtown St. Petersburg, Hyde Park Village. And we got a lot more comfortable with the scale of the project. And then it was fine-tuning the kind of mix of uses. We own Marriott Water Street Hotel, which was built in 99 and the biggest hotel in the market. So we saw how it was doing and it's performing very, very well. So got really comfortable with building a new companion hotel to that, the JW Marriott, which is now under construction. 
it tops out next month and will be open for the Super Bowl in Tampa in 2021, which it will be the headquarters hotel. So we knew the hotel market was strong and there was a lot of opportunity there. Multifamily is very strong in Tampa. The rents actually really surprised me how strong they were compared to a lot of the other markets like Atlanta and Charlotte and Nashville and Austin. So that is, is a wonderful opportunity. And there was a lot of opportunity around the edges in multifamily in terms of that was not being taken advantage of. Different price points, different audiences, different orientations for the buildings. And the office is the big one. We have 2 million square feet of office. When I first started, I thought we were nuts and that we should scale that back. But as we're seeing as we're out in the market and really trying to shake the trees and find opportunities for us to attract new businesses to Tampa, we're actually seeing that that's not so crazy. You know, they did build a million and a half square feet of office in Tampa and three towers in one period of time back in the late 80s, and it did okay. So it's more about for us attracting people and shaping the growth in Tampa. And we think that these uses and the scale actually all feed off of each other. I like that language of shaping the growth. I mean, I think Tampa is a terrific market and absolutely had a lot of the innate characteristics that positioned it for the change that you've had over the last decade. But I think it's also true that you, with your project and other folks following you, by actualizing where some of that growth might occur, you've shaped the growth very consciously so. I think there are lots of markets that have that potential. They're just looking for or waiting for strategic property partners to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just today I'm reading the Tampa Bay Business Journal and there's a story about another condominium project going up downtown. There's three in the pipeline or building you know, one in the first phase. And everyone asked me, are you scared about that? I said, absolutely not. This is wonderful. We're all feeding off of each other. It's growing the downtown market, making it more vibrant. It's fantastic. Yeah, moving from a market where you're competing for other folks' tenants to you're competing to, for other cities' tenants. So tell me about your life in Tampa. Where do you live? What do you like? What do you do for fun? Well, I will first say, but as I said, I, I had known Tampa. We moved down in March of 2016. I had done work in Tampa with Arcielco back in 2005. I hadn't been back since. There was nothing against Tampa at that time, but I was happy in D.C. It was an urban market and good friends there. So we were not necessarily looking forward to moving to Tampa. It was the opportunity that took us there. That changed very quickly. Three, four months after being there, we were like, why are we going out of town on the weekend? You know, this is actually a really wonderful place to live. We live downtown. I walk to work. You know, there's a lot of new restaurants and things to do downtown. And of course, we're hoping to add to that. I'm in Seattle today. I'm heading to D.C. And a few weeks ago, I was in Boston. And you just lose track of the weather <laughs> and other markets. Just think that everywhere is sunny and 80 degrees every single day. And it's not. It's been a wonderful place to live. And that's what we're really trying to obviously market more broadly with what we're doing down there. Is the hardest part is just changing people's perceptions of what they think Florida is and what they think Tampa is and getting them there and letting them see it themselves. It's been wonderful. We really, really enjoy it. I think one of the dirty secrets is that people move from, you know, New York or San Francisco or Washington to terrific communities like Tampa, and the vast majority of them love it. Everybody's worried about what they're being asked to give up, and it turns out to be the opposite. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that. It's a, it's a wonderful quality of life change. It's just easy. It's a really wonderful place. So where do you go from here? What is the future of your company? Are you a one-project company? Will you do other things in Tampa, other markets? Do you have a vision of where you're going? Yeah, well, first, we're going to be quite busy with Water Street for many more years to come. We have another 25 or so acres ahead of us in the subsequent phases here. We'll be wrapping up construction on the first phase, which is about half of the project in 2021. 
but we are already talking to potential partners and looking at other opportunities. Nothing quite like Water Street, but not to say that we don't have to be so formulaic, but we like working in urban environments. We like the idea of scale and the synergies between different uses to drive long-term value. We're looking at opportunities in Tampa, in Tampa Bay and beyond, looking at a lot of other markets that have similar characteristics to Tampa that may not have the level of savvy or the level of investment capacity that, that we can bring. It's hard, very, of course, very hard to find you know, 60 acres of contiguous land in a downtown market and a growing market. So I think we landed something really special here in Tampa, but we're looking for the next one too. And your big thought on where real estate or the land use industry is going, I think you saw it early on and were really at the vanguard of this very dramatic urbanization of American real estate. What do you think is the big evolution of the next decade that maybe you'd love to play a part in? I think there's a lot of opportunity continuing to focus on the urban, you know, downtown cores of our cities and the transportation networks and the mobility and the access to jobs that come with that, which tackles a lot of kind of society problems that we're dealing with today and affordable housing and, you know, access to quality jobs and all sorts of things like that. You're also seeing, you know, right now, of course, you know, very interesting demographic trends. Majority of what we're building for is for the younger audiences and the millennials that everyone talks quite a bit about because it's such a large and growing audience, but also the empty nesters. And that's really driving in Tampa a lot of the multifamily demand, but the potential to really focus towards the young families and the middle market and where that is going to shape and grow over time. Is it the suburbs? Are there more urban and intermarket opportunities that can meet kind of lifestyle and affordability needs? I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. The rental versus ownership dynamics are very interesting to me and to us. And I think that we'll potentially see people renting by choice for a long time. And that's not a bad thing. Historically, it's kind of had a negative connotation. I'm doing it for what it's worth. Uh, we bought a house in Tampa and decided it wasn't for us. We're renting downtown. We love it. Just gives us a lot of mobility and flexibility. And we have a great building and great amenities and management. And I think that there's just a lot of places we can go with just the changing psychographics and demographics of the country. And got a lot more potential in kind of the urban core and inner urban areas of the secondary markets and primary markets. I think we see the future similarly. James, any question that you wish we had asked or I should ask you or something you wanted to talk about? No, this was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. I think it's an exciting time for commercial real estate. We're, we're obviously kind of in a really good market, but there's a lot of changes on the horizon. We're trying to hopefully lead by example and do something a little different here. We have great confidence in it. There's a, you know, a lot more opportunity to come for all of us in this space. James, I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. We covered a lot. The things that I really take away are how much opportunity and how much foresight you had in kind of looking at Tampa and seeing a future that was really radically exciting and that, you know, with the scale of your project, you could play a role in making it happen. And, you know, just how purposeful and thoughtful you've been in creating this company and really you're in Act One. So it'll be a pleasure to follow it. And uh, I look forward to our friendship over the years. And thanks everybody for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., 
Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.